0: A couple of uh, quick announcements before we get started. Just a reminder about the men's camp out. That's on Friday afternoon. We need to, um, someone who's paying attention, uh, we need to set up a, um, a sign-up sheet out in the um, out in the fellowship hall so we know who's coming, how many are coming. We usually get out there anywhere from about 12 or 1 o'clock on Friday afternoon to um, 7 or 8, whenever people can get there. And then uh, have some, uh, have a great time that night. Eat, we eat well, and then on, uh, we always eat well, and then on Saturday morning, we eat well again, <laughs> and then we have a lot of uh, good fun and fellowship till three or four in the afternoon. Probably play some pickleball if I know Orlando. We go out to his place. Most of you know where that is, and so that's uh, that's the rough schedule for April seventeenth and eighteenth. Then just a reminder on the APAC event at Beth Shearn on April the 13th, and then the Camperate garage sale. And f- for those thinking about it, just a reminder that we want to have the um, have a vacation Bible school. I think it's 17th, 18th, 19th, something like that, in July, and that would be a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday morning. We need some volunteers who'll help out, and so we can get um, have some outreach into the, especially these neighborhoods back. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can all be spiritually prepared for a time of studying God's Word and focus on uh, on the Lord. A time when we can maxim- be, a time that can be maximized for our spiritual growth as we walk by the Spirit. So let's uh, bow our heads together, and in a few moments, I will open in prayer. Our Father, as we come together this evening, we're thankful that we can once again come together to study your word. We're thankful we have another day, another week, that we can glorify you and fulfill your mission for us in this life, a time when we can focus on that which is most important, which is how we are here to serve you and how can we grow better and grow more efficiently in our spiritual life, making that our priority. Father, we pray that we might avail ourselves of opportunities that come our way to communicate the gospel to those in our sphere of influence and that we might be consistent in living out a life that reflects uh, the absolute values of your word. And Father, we pray this that tonight as we study your word that we might uh, be able to focus and concentrate and that God the Holy Spirit will help us to not only understand what is going on, but expose in our own thinking ways in which we need to uh, take these principles that we learn and apply them to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as I was praying a few minutes ago, and I'll talk while I'm, I got to correct a slide here quickly. Uh, I, we often talk about evangelism that is with our lips and with our lives. Many of us hope that our witness of our life makes a difference. I have known uh, several Christians and some of whom you know, and they have a they are, have, are men, and the people I 'm thinking of are men they are men of great integrity and in many ways they have a tremendous nonverbal witness in their businesses and in their professional life. But because of the nature of their work, they don't always get an opportunity to communicate the gospel to people as they build relationships. Sometimes they do. And I'm particularly thinking of about three different examples, and several of you would know the people I'm talking about, who have really been, <clears> have <throat> told me this, where they are involved with somebody, and they will get to a point with somebody they've known 5, 10, 15 years, and they will get to a point where they communicate the gospel to them, and the people they communicate the gospel to are absolutely flabbergasted that that someone as intelligent, resourceful, professional, and who excels in their profession like this person does, would believe claptrap like the Bible. And I have thought about that, and I thought, you know, I, a lot of people, I think, don't want to put ourselves out there too much in terms of what we believe because we might get a response like that. But the reality is a witness with the life only goes so far, and we need to have the courage to be challenging people with the truth of God's word and and truly believing it. This last week I was looking at a posting on Facebook where Bob Bolander, who's the pastor of Austin Bible Church, had posted something about a video that was out on the Internet somewhere that was a video from the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group. And he was relating on his Facebook post to the a, a variety of very negative and critical and insulting responses that were posted uh, from people who just couldn't believe these idiot uh, Christians who believe some book that was written three or four thousand years ago and spend all their time talking about what could happen in the future, and their comments were so nasty and so insulting that uh, you can't take offense at it because if they're spiritually dead they don't know any better but what it what i've seen is the level of hostility and disdain that the world has for Christians in America, and it wasn't that way, or at least they didn't voice it, 20 or 30 years ago. Maybe because they didn't have anonymous, uh, <clears throat> they didn't have a, a, a anonymous social media or the internet to post their comments. It just didn't get posted. But we live in a world that is really hostile to biblical truth, and that's not any different from the world in which. We find ourselves at the beginning of 1 Samuel. As we look at 1 Samuel, we recognize the the depravity of the Israelite culture at the end of the period of the judges, that in that culture, they had given themselves over completely to moral relativism. They had given themselves over in many ways to idolatry, where they were worshiping the gods of the surrounding nation, the gods of the Philistines, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of of all of the fertility religions. And they were uh, not only not, their lives weren't discernibly different from the culture around them, but in some cases they were worse. And I've often asked the question, because a lot of times in Christianity, as I've grown up, there is a level of disdain and a negativism that, that is expressed by Christians about unbelievers, if, if all unbelievers have uh, don't have any morals, as if all unbelievers lack integrity, as if all unbelievers are untrustworthy, and that's not true. There are many, many people in this country who are, who are unbelievers, but have levels of integrity that far surpass, sadly, a, a lot of Christians. And I often wonder uh, <clears throat> if within the framework of, of evangelical Christianity that truly believes in grace, that, that we live our lives on the basis of grace, but do we live them in a frivolous manner that doesn't really demonstrate uh, what we think we're demonstrating to the unbelievers around us? obviously in the relativistic culture of the israelites and <clears throat> about 1100 bc there was a, not any difference between those who who were, were israelites who were god's covenant people god's chosen people and the people that surrounded them it is a a culture that was completely given over to some of the most horrific practices a child sacrifice, you see an evidence of that with, with Jephthah back in, in the book of Judges, uh, where the leadership, the, the leadership of Israel was, was uh, exemplified by someone who had such, a, such low morals as Samson, who treated women with such disrespect, who treated his parents with such disrespect, who's violating the law of Moses every time he turned around. And then when we get into the those last episodes of Judges that I talked about last time, we see the the the, the uh, perversion and apostasy within some of the members of the uh, of the priesthood, the Levites, and how they led the nation into uh, apostasy and into idolatry. And we wonder, can there be any hope? They are just at the very bottom. It, 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 if the Lord had had let them go a little further. He would have had to have removed them from the land in 1100 BC instead of waiting until 722 or 586 because they were just so perverse. And yet what we see in Samuel is as bad as it is, or as bad as it was in Israel at that time, it changed completely within a couple of generations due to the grace of God and due to the leadership of just a few individuals. And that, that the culture changes. So by the time we get to the end of 1 Samuel, which is a period of about a hundred years after the beginning of the book, there is this, this tremendous shift that's occurred within the Israelite culture, not unlike the shift that occurred in places like, like Britain uh, during the Protestant Reformation, the shift from the beginning of to the middle of the 1500s to the beginning to the middle of the 1600s, just a tremendous shift as people beca- became focused and immersed in the study of God's Word and its application in their lives. So we see that God... The same God who delivered Israel in the Old Testament, the same God who delivered uh, Britain during the 16th and 17th centuries, the same God who can transform things in our culture, and things radically need to be transformed. The hostility to biblical truth is palpable, and you can almost cut it with a knife in many areas of this country. You go to the northeast, the northwest, the left coast. Uh, it, it, it's horrific to be a Christian and to take a stand for biblical christianity and that's just a preview of coming attractions where we're protected to a large degree in the south and the old bible belt but the residual impact of biblical truth in our culture is rapidly rapidly eroding and when we look around us and we look at the, the the culture around us the hostility towards biblical christianity sometimes people want to give up they just think it's hopeless well the lord's going to come back And what we learn from the scripture is no situation is ever hopeless, whether it's personal or whether it's cultural or or national, that God is in the business of changing people's lives, changing the way they think, and he is in the business of changing culture. But he does that through people uh, who are focused on him and who are focused on uh, biblical truth and obeying him often obscure people, people the world thinks of as fools, people who are irrelevant. And that's what we see at the beginning uh, of Samuel. We see a woman who is a uh, barren. She is sort of the put out to pasture first wife who was infertile and could not have children. And yet it is through her and her devotion and focused on God. And she's presented in Scripture as, as one of the most spiritually focused women and all of uh, of the uh, old testament, and yet it 's through her and and the Son that God gives her that Israel is going to be transformed it 's by someone who is not a person who is uh, uh, socially uh, respected by everyone it 's not somebody who 's an aristocrat it 's not somebody who is uh, someone you would expect and later on, the great deliverer that everything focuses on in Samuel is first introduced to us as a the youngest most disdained son of a family of sons and he is like the youngest uh, uh, youngest boy in any family is rejected by his father and his brothers and he's put out with the sheep and he is virtually ignored by everybody else in the family god is in the business of taking people who seem to be uh socially culturally politically impotent and transforming societies and cultures through them because of their devotion to the word. It is that devotion to the Lord and devotion to the word that is so critical. And what we see in this section of Samuel and in Samuel is God is preparing to deliver Israel. That full deliverance doesn't come until we get into uh, really Second Samuel. It's the beginning, uh, though, begins in uh, in First Samuel. And as I get into this, we'll see that there are three basic divisions to First Samuel. But just a reminder chart I've put up several times that gives us the the chronological framework for the period of of this book. Samuel himself's dates are roughly; these are approximates, uh, roughly eleven fifteen B.C. to ten twenty B.C. So that covers from the beginning to the end of uh just about to the end of this book somewhere around uh, uh 10 10 10 years after Samuel dies is when uh is when Saul is uh uh killed and the Israelite army defeated by the uh, Philistines at Mount uh Mount Gilboa uh so Samuel's life overlaps that of Samson, who is he's he's contrasted to at the beginning of this book, as I pointed out last time. Uh he overlaps a little bit the judgeship of Jephthah uh in the Trans Jordan, and he of course uh overlaps with Saul. Uh, he overlaps with the Ammonite oppression coming in from the east, as well as the Philistine oppression coming from the area that today is the Gaza Strip, coming in from the southwest. So that gives us our little little chart. Now, what I want to do as we look at this is we're still in this cycle of the judges, where Israel's disobedient. That's what we see here. They're disobedient. They've still been disobedient since the beginning of the uh, of the announcement of the birth of Samson. They, uh, God brings them under discipline, and the agent of discipline at this time is the Philistines. And then there's a cry out for deliverance. This is the focal point, is how God is delivering Israel during this time, how God delivers a nation. And, um, and that's the story, basically, of First Samuel. And then there's going to be another cycle, but the cycle is broken, which means the cycle can be broken. And what breaks the cycle is the grace of God. Now, you'll hear me talk about the grace of God as I set this first section in 1 Samuel up, because what we're going to do tonight, I've done a flyover of the whole book, but tonight I want to do a little bit of a flyover as we narrow down to the first section in Samuel, which uh, involves the first first seven uh, chapters. And as we look at that, we see grace is the starting point and there's a play on words there because the woman who is the focal point on which the deliverance turns his name is Hannah from the Hebrew word hen which is the word for grace so her word mean her name means god is gracious and so there's this emphasis how does god deliver israel from grace and the woman he uses is a woman whose name uh, whose name is, is grace. Now, here are the three divisions. I want you to think about this a minute. As we look at uh, Samuel itself, the first seven chapters represent the first major division that God is preparing uh, to deliver the nation Israel from her enemies by grace. God always deals with the human race on the basis of grace. And so this first section, the first seven chapters, is God is preparing. He needs to set it up. And it takes uh, about 30 to 40 years to effect that change. Change doesn't happen quickly. You don't change to the negative quickly. We didn't get in this mess in our country just because Barack Obama was elected in, um, in 2008. We got in this mess in this country because starting with the post, World War II period, we failed, to pa- we failed to pass the test of prosperity, and spiritually we failed to follow the Lord, and there was superficial obedience in the 50s and 60s, but there was a, a, a an undercurrent of, of disobedience which really played out not with the World War II generation but with the baby boomers, and the baby boomers were spoiled rotten, and they were taught wrongly I always think of the irony that today we think of the golden age of television. If our kids just grew up on on Leave It to Beaver and on Ozzy and Harriet and on some of those family shows, then they would turn out wonderfully. Well, the baby boomers grew up on that, and they didn't turn out so wonderfully because there were there were deep, there's deeper and more profound influences in the culture, and to change the culture takes. And it takes energy, and above all, it takes a focus on God's word by God's people. So, God prepares to deliver the nation Israel from her enemies by grace. The second major division is coming, going to come up from 8 to 15 when God establishes the office of the king. Now, we know that the first king isn't the king God ultimately wanted Israel to have, but he still has to teach them a lesson and give them a king like all the other nations have. And that's ultimately the kind of thing that we voted for in 2008 is we wanted to have a a president like they have in Europe. We wanted to have a culture uh, like they have in Europe. We wanted to be more like the Europeans, and we wanted to forget about American exceptionalism and the influence of biblical Christianity on American culture. That is what made American culture was the influence of biblical truth. It wasn't the influence of, of the liberal ideas that came out of the Enlightenment and bore their fruit in the 19th century. With, uh, with socialism and Marxism and, and coming out of psychology and sociology and these other uh, ways of thinking that were not based on absolutes. And when Western civilization gave itself over to these ideas and the foundations of Western civilization began to crumble, it took longer for that to impact in the United States, but it did. And what happened in 2008 with that election was the fruit of a hundred and fifty years of the increasing impact of apostasy, secularism, and and uh, and atheism, and so to reverse that takes time. And God still had a lesson to teach the Israelites; they had to learn that they weren't to be like everybody else. God had a distinct role for them, and they needed to have a unique king—a king not like all the other all the nations had. I have no idea why that did that. But they needed to have a king that would be a man after God's own heart. And that took time to prepare the nation and to prepare that that individual. And that's David. David is anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. And so the third division of this book comes up where God decreases the influence of Saul, who's still the king, and increases David. This is covered in 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 1. So God prepares to deliver the nation. Then God establishes the king. And then God decreases the significance of Saul and increases David. And so we see that charted out this way, that Samuel is the key person in the first seven chapters. Then we see Saul and the rise of Saul in chapters 8 through 15, and then his decline and David's rise in 16 to 31. That's a starting point. Now, what I want to do tonight is I want to look at these first seven chapters so that we understand the flow of what's going on in these chapters. It's so important for us to understand uh, not just the individual details, but what the writer of Scripture is is teaching and communicating. And one of the ways that I learned, in fact, I learned this when I taught 1 Samuel about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, is that you read all kinds of outlines, but in narrative literature, the hero of the story in the Bible is always God. And so the best way to express that in an outline is not just what you'll find in most outlines is that Samuel did this, or Hannah prayed to the Lord for the birth of Samuel, but the actor, the one who is in control of history, is the Lord, and he's the hero in the narrative. So the first division covers the first chapter down through the 11th verse of the second chapter, where the Lord graciously prepares Israel for deliverance through the birth of a son. Does that ring a bell? This is a pattern that we have in Scripture, and it foreshadows something. We have the fact that, it, that Scripture is great literature, and it's constantly using parallels and foreshadowing in order to teach and instruct things. So the Lord graciously prepares Israel for deliverance through the birth of a son, which is a foreshadowing of the fact that God will deliver the human race from the penalty of sin through the birth of his son, which is announced in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. The second major division in this section is that the Lord prepares Israel for a new era. He's got to prepare the nation for a new era. That means he's got to clean out the garbage. He's got to clean out the the, uh, the evil. It's just like it, it. It is a picture on a national level of the importance of confession and turning to God in obedience and away from uh, disobedience and and sin. Is there has to be a cleansing, and so this brings judgment upon the house of Eli, so in second uh, uh, Samuel uh, our first Samuel two twelve to thirty six the Lord prepares Israel for a new era by blessing hannah 's family and beginning to judge bring condemnation on the house of eli eli 's the high priest, his too ne'er do well uh, abusive pagan sons are are taking advantage of the Israelites that are coming to the tabernacle to worship, they're taking their money, they're uh, coercing the women to sleep with them in order to be able to worship, they're turning it into a, uh, a, a, a sex cult, a fertility cult which was not uncommon, treating the women of Israel as if they're cultic prostitutes, which was very common in the fertility worship in, in the ancient world Then in uh, the third major division is the third chapter. The Lord initiates Samuel's role as a prophet. A prophet doesn't initiate his own role. He doesn't just stand up and say, oh, God spoke to me last night. I'm a prophet. Uh, The Lord initiates that through, through Samuel's role as a prophet to Israel, and that's the third chapter. The fourth chapter, the Lord causes Israel to be defeated. See, they still needed to be disciplined and uh, as part of the fourth cycle of discipline in Leviticus 26, they needed to be defeated militarily and under the oppression of a foreign power. And so God <clears throat> orchestrates that in a, in an interesting way and allows the ark which is the representation of his presence to be, uh, captured so that the house of Eli will be judged because it's in the battle that, uh, where Israel's defeated that the two sons of Eli are killed. And then when Eli gets the news, he's 98 years old and, and as, as fat as he can be and he falls over and lands on his head and breaks his neck. And so the house of Eli is judged and ends. And of course, Israel's in a state of panic and collapse because now God's been captured. But God is going to demonstrate in the last section, in chapter 5, verse 1 through 717, that he is still in charge, that circumstances don't limit him. We don't need to wring our hands when things don't go the way we think they should, when it seems like God is being defeated. Uh, God is still in charge, he's never defeated, and he has a little fun with the Philistine god Dagon and demonstrates in this whole episode that he is definitely still in control and teaches both the Philistines and Israel that they are not to treat him with disrespect or to treat him lightly. So these are the basic five divisions in these seven chapters. The Lord graciously prepares Israel for deliverance. Uh, through the birth of a son in 1 Samuel 1, 1 to 2:11, Then the Lord prepares Israel for a new era by blessing the family of Hannah and bringing judgment on the house of Eli in 2:12 to 36. Then in chapter three, the Lord initiates Samuel's role as a prophet to Israel. In chapter four, the Lord causes Israel to be defeated, allows the ark to be captured, and brings judgment on the house of Eli. First Samuel four, one to twenty-two. And last of all, the Lord establishes his authority, his power, and glory through Samuel's judgeship in chapters five chapter five, one through seven seventeen. So let's look at each one of these. Uh, individually, uh, open your Bibles. You can follow along with me. I'll point out a few things as we go through this, just to get the overview here. Uh, in the first chapter, from one one down to five two, we're introduced to the household of Elkanah. He—I'll get into some of the details of this later on. He is probably a Levite. We have his uh, genealogy given in 1 Chronicles chapter six, but he lives in the territory of Ephraim which is an area where a number of Levites had taken up residence, according to the book of Judges. And so he would be referred to as an Ephraimite, not because that's his tribe, but because that's his area of residence. But that fits because there's no problem for Eli to let Samuel live and serve in the in the temple. And the genealogy in First Chronicles 6 confirms that that uh, Elkanah is is uh, a descendant of of um, of, Le- of uh, Levi. He's a Levitical priest. He's got two wives. He's got two wives. He's got. Uh, His first wife was probably Hannah, second wife Penina. Hannah is infertile. She's barren there. She is one of six women in Scripture who's barren, who has not been able to have children. And it's significant because in Israel under the second or third cycle of discipline, that God would bring barrenness to the wombs of the mothers of Israel. And so Hannah is, in, in in several ways, a picture of Israel at this particular time. She is under oppression within her home from Penina. She is barren, just as Israel is spiritually barren. She is... Um, uh, not able to really accomplish anything in terms of her own purpose. And so she is is depressed and she's grieving and she is discouraged. And uh, in the course of time, God is going to deliver her from her oppression. And the way in which God delivers Hannah from her oppression is the way God is going to deliver Israel from israel 's oppression from the uh, from the Philistines, so the first twenty verses here, uh, the Lord opens up hannah 's womb, and it 's interesting how he does this because unlike an announcement to uh, Sam- samson 's mother from the angel of the Lord that she would uh, conceive and give birth to a son who would be a Nazarite from birth, it is Hannah who takes the initiative here. As a result of her oppression, and you have words that are used here several times that she's uh, weeping, she's grieved, uh, she has bitterness of soul, she weeps in anguish, and she is about as depressed and discouraged and hopeless as she possibly can be. And God has allowed that suffering to come in her life so that He can accomplish a great purpose in Israel. See, a lot of times we don't understand why God has brought great suffering or deprivation into our lives because we don't see the big picture and we have to learn to trust God. And Hannah uh trusts the Lord and she makes a vow. We learn that the family is very spiritual in the in the middle of this time period of such uh, more relativism. Every year they would go to the tabernacle and they would worship the Lord and they would take animals for sacrifices. And so you see the spiritual focus and the spiritual leadership in the home, uh, for Elkanah. You see his love for Hannah, but since she, uh, is unable to give, uh, to give birth, uh, you see that he, uh, committed bigamy, took a second wife. And so what does that remind you of? I ought to remind you, if you were Jewish and reading this, you would be thinking about Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. And so the writer brings these kinds of things in there to catch our attention so that we are thinking in terms of God's plan and God's God's purpose. So in the first 20 verses, we read about God opening up um, Hannah's womb and that she is uh, conceives and then she is going to give birth to a son. In verses 21 through 28, um, we read about their response in gratitude. They are not self-centered, as many people in Israel were, especially in contrast to Eli and his sons, that when she gave birth, then we read in verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house Uh, So he seems to be a man of some substance and means, and they go up um, to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to make his vow. Uh, Hannah doesn't go up, and she says, not until the child is weaned. And in our culture, that doesn't seem very old, but in their culture, that could be as late as six or seven years of age so that's a period of time when she would have a tremendous uh, time of teaching and instruction and spiritual influence uh, uh, upon Samuel uh, but be, before she took him uh to to the temple and so this is the uh, then she finally brings him to the t- to the uh uh tabernacle rather and she uh, sees uh Eli and says and reminds him that they had met before, that she had prayed to the Lord, and Eli saw her lips move and said, Are you drunk? And she said, No, that she was just praying to the Lord. And so she reminds him of all of this and says, Now that she has brought her son, and she has loaned him to the Lord, that he might serve the Lord. And so she worships the Lord. That's the end of chapter 1. Then we have this tremendous uh, hymn that she writes uh, in in chapter 2. In fact, she is... Uh, pictured here as a woman of prayer we don 't have a prayer. we have a poem of praise by Miriam, but we don 't have a prayer like this expressed uh, from a woman in scripture, so it shows a high view of hannah 's spirituality in in this text that it brings us out, and not only that, but it is a a, a in, in the course of this hymn. She has a messianic prophecy. She understands that the birth of this child, this son, fits somehow into God's plan of providing his anointed king who will rule over Israel. Look at verse uh, <clears throat> verse 10. It says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces, from heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Now at this point, remember, Israel doesn't even have a, doesn't have a king. So she is uh, pre- predicting this. She understands that uh, that it is through her son that God's king is ultimately going to be elevated. Ultimately, that relates to a uh, messianic. Messianic prophecy, and then we read in verse eleven, then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest, so Samuel she leaves behind. So in these verses from verse Samuel one one to two eleven, the Lord graciously prepares Israel for deliverance to the birth of a son. Now, the next division starts in 2.12, and from 2.12 down through the end of the chapter, the focus is a contrast between God's blessing for uh, Hannah and her family and God's uh, uh, impending judgment on the house of Eli. So we're told about these uh, evil, corrupt, uh, perverse sons of Eli and how they treat the Lord contemptuously. So the Lord is treated with disdain and is ignored by Eli's son. And we're told that that the priest's custom with the people, verse 13, this isn't a Levitical custom, by the way. The priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling and just take out what uh, whatever it was that they wanted. So they are just using their position of spiritual leadership to, uh, to abuse the people. And by verse 17, we're told that the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred, that's men, that is the people of Israel abhorred the offering of the Lord. You didn't want to go there to worship because the leaders were so corrupt and so perverse. So we read about the corruption of Eli's sons in verses 12 through 17, and then we're introduced to Samuel again. We go shift back to Samuel as we see him grow. And the language that is used to describe Samuel's growth is picked up by Luke to describe the growth of the Lord. So we see that Samuel is in some ways a foreshadowing or type of the Lord Jesus Christ, so he serves the Lord. Verse eighteen picks up where verse eleven ended. Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. So even though he's never called a priest, he dresses like a priest and he functions uh, like like a priest. Every year, his mother would make him a new set of clothes as he grew, a little robe, and bring it to him year by year when they came up, so they had a family connection. They were about ten miles. Are ten or twelve miles from Ramah up to uh, up to Shiloh. Uh, verse twenty, uh, uh, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, "The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord." And verse twenty-one, we read of God's blessing and the Lord visited Hannah, so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Principle: When we serve the Lord, God is going to provide for us and 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 bless us. Whatever it is that we give to him, God will take care of us. And then we're given a progress report on Samuel at the end of the verse. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now, this is going to be repeated again in verse 26, where we read, And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with with men. And again in 319, so Samuel grew. And the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Three times this is stated. Now, the verse 26, where it says, Samuel grew in stature and in favor with both the Lord and men. This is very similar to what is said about the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 2.42 that the Lord Jesus Christ grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and men. That was Luke 2.42. So we can see that the scriptures are definitely connecting Samuel and his role as a priest as a type or foreshadowing uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're told in verse 22 that Eli is very old and that God announces through an unnamed prophet that he is going to judge Eli and his sons for their sins. This is the uh, sin unto death. And uh, part of the corruption is described in the last part of verse 22, where uh, we read, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Uh, this is like the cultic prostitutes in the Baal worship, the worship of the fertility religions and And Eli, to his credit, is very much against this, and yet he has lost control of his sons, and they 're abusive toward him, and dishonor uh, dishonor him and So we see how dishonorable they are, and that 's the context of of two twenty six when we see the praise of of uh, Samuel and his growth. Uh, physically and spiritually, and in favor with the Lord and men. And then God sends, in verse 27, an unnamed man of God. An, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? This would be going back to uh, uh, back to Aaron. Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer up my altar? And it goes on. And then eventually, uh, God announces judgment on on Eli, and he says at the end of verse 30, uh, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, verse 31, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm in the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. This is a reference to Numbers 25, 13, that the, the house... Uh, of, of of his father, this lineage of the house of Eli would not survive the priesthood. That an everlasting covenant was made uh, there with um, uh, Eliezer. and so it, or Phine- excuse me with Phineas, and not the Phineas that's his son, but an everlasting covenant had been given with the grandson of Aaron, Phineas, and that his descendants would be the permanent high priest, and that. Um, uh, that is going to uh, see for us that that is the um, the Levitical priest that will survive and will uh, be priests serving in the millennial uh, the millennial kingdom. Uh, the house of Zadok, the Zadokite priest, or Zadok as it's pronounced in Hebrew, the Zadokite priest. Okay, so that takes us down through the end of this particular. Uh, of chapter 2, and there is a prophecy given in verse 35 where God says, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before me anointed forever. Now to whom does that refer? That, of course, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king. It is not referring to Samuel. It's referring to a priest who will be anointed forever. Now, there may be an allusion there to the house of Zadok, but ultimately, this fulfillment comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is both the Mashiach, the anointed one, but he is also a priest. And so those two things, the priesthood, everlasting priesthood, and the uh, anointed one come together in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Israel is prepared for a new era. You have the blessing of the house of, of Hannah and the judgment announced on the house of, of Eli. Then we come to the third chapter. Now this is when the Lord initiates Samuel's role as a prophet to Israel. We read of this episode that occurs, this young young boy, he's not very old. He might be 12 or 13 by this time. The boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. That takes us back to chapter 2, verse 11, as well as chapter 2, verse 18. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. This means that God has not given any special revelation in a while. He's not speaking through his prophets. There were rare instances. We had the man of God who is mentioned in um, uh, chapter 2, verse 27, who came to Eli. There were a couple of, of uh, uh, prophetic uh, references in Judges, but that's it. God is not revealing himself. There is a silence of God uh, during this particular time, and so... The word of the Lord was rare in those days, no widespread revelation. It came to pass at that time that Eli's, it's nighttime, Eli goes to bed, Samuel goes to bed, and then Samuel hears a, a voice calling him, and he runs into, uh, runs into Eli and says, here I am. And Eli says, well, wait a minute, I didn't call you, uh, go back and lie down. And then the second time the Lord calls. And he goes into Eli and Eli had enough discernment to say, "Well, I think the Lord's calling you. Go back and lie down, and if the Lord uh calls you a third time, then say, Just answer the Lord. here I am for you called uh called me uh, excuse me he says um, um This is in verse 8. I misread that. I was reading verse 7. It says, Eli said, go lie down if he calls. Say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's verse verse 9. So Samuel goes back a third time, lies down, and then the Lord came and stood and called. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Now, there's this little note that occurs in verse 7. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Now, that's not saying he wasn't saved. I've mentioned this many times that when in evangelical American evangelical idiom, we often say, "Well, do you know the Lord?" As if that means, "Are you saved? Have you believed in Jesus?" That doesn't. What this means is that up to this time, Samuel had not been spoken to by the Lord. He had not revealed Himself. In this kind of special revelatory way. And so Samuel didn't know how the Lord communicated to a prophet. He didn't have that experience behind him. So now he's getting that experience, and the Lord announces that he's going to bring judgment on the house of Eli, and it is going to shock the nation. It will reverberate. Uh, they will be uh, Twittering about it. They'll be announcing it on Facebook. It's going to be emailed to everybody, and it's going to be on the whole news cycle for more than just a week or two. Uh, that's what he, basically what the Lord means when he says, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That's the idiom. They're going to be talking about it for weeks. It's going to be so extreme. And he says, in that day, he's going to destroy the house of Eli. He's already announced it to Eli. Now he's announcing it to Samuel. And so Samuel lay down the next morning. Eli says, well, what did the Lord tell you? Tell me everything. And so verse 18, uh, Samuel told him uh, everything. And it's interesting to see Eli's response. He says, that's the Lord's will. He says, it's the Lord. Uh, let him do what seems good to him. He recognizes that this is from the Lord. And then we get another progress report on Samuel. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. Let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Now you might want to circle that word established because it's an interesting word. And then in verse 21, the Lord uh, appears in Shiloh again. For the Lord revert, revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? The, the, the Lord revealed himself by the word of the Lord. How does the Lord reveal himself by the word of the Lord? If you read, by the, read that too fast, you're going to say, Well, the Lord re- revealed himself by speaking to Samuel. But is that what that's saying? What do we read in John one one? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we have an allusion to the Trinity. The Lord, God the Father, is revealing himself to Samuel through the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ by the logos, the Word of the Lord. So it is the second person of the Trinity who is fulfilling his role as the revealer of the Godhead. All right, then we come to to chapter 4. In chapter 4, we see that the Lord causes Israel to be defeated, allows the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the pagan enemies of Israel uh, for the purpose that the house of Eli can be judged. And so we see at the beginning of this that Israel is going to go out to battle and encamp at a place called Ebenezer. Ebenezer, which means the rock of help. Ezer means help. Eben is a word for rock. And this is a, a sort of an anachronism because it isn't named this until we get to chapter 7. But the Israelites reading this would know where Ebenezer was located. And we're told the battle, they set up the, the camp, the Philistines at Aphek, and the Phil- Philistines are in battle array. And uh, on the first day, Israel is defeated, and about four thousand uh, Israelites are are killed. Four thousand Israelites are killed, and then they go back to uh, they go back to Shiloh. When the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, "Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh." To us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, last week, as I went through those closing events in Judges, we saw something similar happen in Judges chapter 20, verses 26 and following. And this was in the middle of that civil war with the Benjamites. Remember, I said the first day that there was a battle with the Benjamites, and the Benjamites killed about 20,000 Israelites. I don't remember the exact number. Second day, they killed about 25,000. And then the Israelites went back to Shiloh, and what did they do? They did something very different from this. Here they're treating the ark like it's a good luck charm. If we just go get the ark and put God out there in front of us, like some people wear a cross or a star of David or like God's going to protect me, I'll just hold up my Bible and the vampires won't get me. Uh just a good good luck symbol. Uh, what happened in Judges 20 is the Israelites when pulled back to Shiloh and were told that they sat before the Lord, they fasted, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and then they inquired of the Lord what they should do the next day. And the Lord said, go into battle and I will give you victory. So we see that they humbled themselves under the hand of God and God gave them victory. But that's not what we see in 1 Samuel 4. In 1 Samuel 4, we see that that they sent to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant uh, of the Lord of Hosts, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, came with them. There's no humbling themselves, there's no repentance, there's no confession, there's no offering of burnt offerings or peace offerings. There's nothing spiritual at all. They just think the ark's a good luck charm, but God uh, allowed them to be defeated that first day so that it would draw they would they would knowing that they would do this, it would draw Hophni and Phinehas into the battle and into the battle zone. So the next day when they go into battle with the Philistines, the Philistines are going to slaughter the Israelites. They're going to kill Hophni and Phinehas and they're going to capture uh, capture the ark. Uh, it's interesting how they, this is described. When the Philistines hear that the ark's coming, they are scared to death. And so one of their motivational speakers got up and basically told them to man up and that if we're really tough, we can win the battle. And God allowed them to win the battle. When Eli heard about this, a messenger came, Eli heard about that his sons were killed and the ark was captured he he just, the Bible says he was he was fat and he was old. He was 98 years old and he fell over uh, off the seat. In verse 18, he fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel for 40 years. And then to conclude it, his daughter-in-law, uh, Phineas' wife, was with child to be delivered. When she heard the news, she gave birth and... Uh, And then she dies, and they named her son, she named his son before she died, Ichabod, meaning no glory. The glory is taken from Israel. The glory of God has departed. Now, then we come to chapters 5 through 7. 5 through 7 depicts the demonstration of God's power and glory through Samuel's judgeship. God's character, God's power, the fact that he is a sovereign Lord is demonstrated through Samuel's judgeship. First of all, he demonstrates his sovereignty and his power over the God of the Philistines. See, what we see in Israel is that they're always at the heart of a spiritual conflict. Whenever Israel is being attacked militarily, there's always already something going on within the angelic conflict within the realm of the angels there is something going on because satan hates the jewish people he lost out at the cross and the lord jesus christ the messiah defeated him at the cross the only recourse he has to defeat god is to is to keep god from fulfilling his promises to the jewish people if he can wipe out the jewish people then god can't fulfill his promises to abraham isaac and jacob and if he doesn't fulfill his promises to Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then Satan thinks that he can claim the victory. So that's why Israel is always at the focal point in the angelic conflict. And that is why uh, Satan is always raising up his nations to hate Israel. What other nation is, what other group of people has experienced anything close to the hostility that the Jewish people have. That is a great witness to the existence of God in the truth of the Bible. You don't find the Japanese people hated like this. You don't find uh, the English hated like this. You don't find the South Africans hated like this. You don't find any other ethnic group in the world hated like the Jews are hated. And we ought to ask that question, why? It's sort of like the question that I think it was uh, Frederick uh Frederick the Great of Prussia asked his, uh, I may be wrong on which Frederick that was, but I think it was Frederick the Great, asked his chaplain, give me one reason why I ought to believe the Bible. And his chaplain said, the Jews. Now, his chaplain was talking about the fact that the Jews always managed to survive, and that's because of God's promise. But it's not only the survival of the Jews, it's also the survival of anti-Semitism is, is an, uh, an evidence of the truth of the Bible. And so uh, God is going to protect Israel no matter what. And there's always this, this religious dimension. Because whoever hates Israel hates Israel's God and wants to defeat it. And the gods of the enemies of Israel are always seen as doing battle with the gods of Israel. And so Allah, the gods of the Muslim, is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Allah is the God of Abraham and Ishmael. It's not the same. Uh, Allah is hostile to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the battle. Allah versus Yahweh and yahweh is always going to win therefore there may be a lot of bad things that happen because of uh, islam but ultimately, Islam is going to be defeated and eradicated because it is the religion of Satan, which I believe is personified in Allah in the Quran. That's not politically correct, by the way, but I think that's the truth. If you just read your Bible and study it, you'll come to understand that. All other gods are false gods, and all false gods, according to the Bible, are, are empowered by demons. and and satan so god is going to poke fun at this god this is not politically correct either god is going to ridicule the god of dagon and we go through this whole episode where they put the ark of the covenant in, in front of Dagon, the next morning they come in and Dagon's bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. So they stand him back up and the next day he's bowing down. And his feet and his hands are cut off so they can't stand him up again. And uh, then the people start getting these diseases. They get a bad case of hemorrhoids and, and then they're overrun with these. And they probably think that these are tumors related to bubonic plague because they, they also are overrun with rats and mice and they make these little gold images that they think will placate the god. Uh, of the ark and, uh, and they'll survive. And that's the basic story of chapter five. And then finally, the Philistines say, we've got to get this ark out of here or it's going to kill us all. So they take it back to Israel. But not only does God demonstrate his power over the false gods of the Philistines, but he's going to demonstrate his power over the irreverent and apostate Israelites. Initially, it looks like the Israelites know what they're doing, because when the cart that's Carrying the ark, that's not how it was supposed to be carried, but when this cart is carrying the ark, when it stops in this field, they go out and they kill the two cows that are pulling the cart, and they take the wood from the cart, and they burn it up to to have a burnt offering of the two cows. But in order to take the cart apart, they have to take the ark off, but they don't handle it correctly. They open it up, they look inside, and so as a result, God is going to slaughter a bunch of the men from Beth Shemis because they have treated him blasphemously. And so after that happens, then the men of Beth called call to send a message to the men a little bit further down the road. Beth Shemesh is about 15 miles west of Jerusalem, and uh, Kiriath-Jerim as about 10 miles, Kiriath Jerim is now a, the location of an Arab village called Abu Ghosh. And if you've been with me to Israel the last night, we go to this great little Arab restaurant there in Abu Ghosh on the way to the airport. So that's where Kiriath Jerim was located. And this is where the Ark is going to stay for approximately a hundred, hundred years. Now when you read, in the text, in, in 1 Samuel 7, two it says, so it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time, and it was there 20 years. What it is saying is, it was there a long time, but 20 years after it first got there, this is when Samuel came and spoke to the house of Israel. And what does he say? This is Deuteronomy 30. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts then and put away the God's, uh, and the from among you. In other words, turning to God means you've got to get rid of the idols. You've got to quit going to uh, these, you know, fertility services at the local, local pagan cult. You've got to turn to God, which means you clean up your life. You get rid of all the other stuff, and then God will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. What's the Israelites' response in verse four? They put away the Baals and the Asherahs. They got rid of the fertility cult. And they worshiped the Lord. They served the Lord alone. And so then Samuel gave them instructions to go to Mizpah, to go to Mizpah, and there um, God would uh, would meet with them. When they go to Mizpah, the Philistines heard about it. And the Philistines said, well, we've got them all in one place. Let's go attack them. So they go to attack uh, <clears throat> attack Israel, and God sends this thunderstorm, where the thunder is so extreme, it just confuses the Philistines to no end. They start fighting each other, and then the Israelites are able to defeat them, and this ends the occupation of Israel by the Philistines. It doesn't end their oppression. They keep harassing them until David finally defeats them, which occurs in in the early part of 2 Samuel. But the occupation of Israel by the Philistines is going to end. And we're told in verse 13 that the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the temp- territory of, of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So even though they kept fighting, the Lord gave Israel victory. And then we have the final uh, final statement here uh, summing up it, Samuel's ministry to this point. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so that gives us a summary focal point of the beginning uh, first Samuel, those first seven chapters, and we'll come next time and we'll start to look at the initial episode as God graciously prepares to provide a deliverance for Israel through Hannah. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this, uh, this evening and to reflect upon your grace and your goodness and how you work in history to bring about deliverance. But the ultimate causative fact in history we see has to do with people's spiritual relationship with you. It's not about having the right political system. It's not about having the right political theory or the right economic theory. It is ultimately about having the right relationship with you. And although there are temporary political and economic solutions, the only solution that is going to count is a solution that includes a turning back to you and a focus upon you and your word as the center of our lives. And that must be our ultimate focal point as believers in this nation is to bring people's attention and their focus back to the gospel and to uh, you as the source of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.